This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, the never-ending quest. I'm going to tell you two stories, each one crazier than the next. The first one starts in the early 1300s in Timbuktu. Timbuktu was the center of one of the greatest empires in the world, the Mali Empire in West Africa. And early 1300s means it was before the radical redistribution of wealth commonly referred to as colonization. The king, Mansa Musa, was so rich, it's hard to wrap your head around. He commissioned the most spectacular buildings, including the University of Sankore, and bought hundreds of thousands of manuscripts, attracting scholars from all over the Islamic world. Then in 1324, this king decides to go on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, And en route, he spends so much gold that he causes inflation so severe that even 12 years later, the market in Cairo had not fully recovered. Maybe he overdid it just a little bit, because the money for the trip back, he had to borrow. That's the first story. The second story is about another voyage. And the only documented source we have for this story is that same king, Mansa Musa. When he was in Cairo, a local emir asked him how he actually became the king. Well, Musa said, I'm paraphrasing, my predecessor, King Abu Bakr II, refused to believe he would never see past the horizon. So he decided to go and explore. He goes on to tell the emir that Abu Bakr II ordered 200 boats to be packed full with enough gold, food, and water to last the crew for years, plus another 200 boats with rowers. And he told them, don't come back until you've reached the other shore. The trip ended in tragedy. Only one boat came back. Its captain said that a powerful current had swallowed up all the others. But Abu Bakr II was not one for giving up. So he gave orders to ready even more boats, 2,000 in total. And this time, he decided to go along. And he asked Mansa Musa to keep an eye on the empire while he was gone. As you may have guessed, that was the last anyone heard of him. Now here's the reason I'm telling you all this. The story of this transatlantic daredeviling is the subject of a new book of epic poetry titled The Never-Ending Quest for the Other Shore. It was actually written in French by the Senegalese French poet and historian Sylvie Condé over 10 years ago, but now there's a bilingual edition with an English translation by Alexander Degau. You'll hear from both of them, first the author, then the translator. But you'll hear the translator's voice throughout because as we discuss a few excerpts, he will be reading the translation. One last thing you need to know before I get out of the way. Apologies, this is so long. Sylvie Condé has written three cantos. The first and second focus on the attempted ocean crossing of this king from the 1300s, Abu Bakr II. The third and last canto is about another attempted ocean crossing, set today, of a young African boat migrant hoping to make it to Europe. When I sat down with Sylvie Condé to talk about her book, The Never-Ending Quest for the Other Shore, 
I asked her about those two stories, that of today and that from the 1300s, and what they have in common. Here's Sylvie Condé. So Abu Bakr II couldn't believe that the horizon was the end of knowledge, and he left and was never seen again. So uh, the whole episode is extremely dramatic. The way Abu Bakr II was described was this thirst of knowledge, you know, and mm-hmm. this enthusiasm about going beyond what is possible. Uh, this hubris, in fact, that pushed him not to stay with this immense empire that he had. He was not satisfied with that because he felt that there was something else to be seen. Then the last canto is exclusively devoted to contemporary voyages, starting with the Uh, the years uh, 1990s, I suppose, when the, a number of African migrants chose to cross the Mediterranean, but also part of the Atlantic, as the migration policies became more and more restrictive in Europe, and uh, you know the possibility of asylum was uh, limited, more and more limited. So those dramatic crossings really um, moved me very, very deeply. And at the same time, I was quite unsatisfied with the reports, uh, journalistic reports that were written and that emphasize, of course, the misery, the poverty of the migrants coming. And uh, not only is it not accurate, but I felt that, you know, those voyages, those contemporary voyages were made in the name of uh, values, because there's a long tradition in West Africa of migrations, and migration is seen as something positive. Not everybody has the privilege to migrate. Uh, In general, the youngest in the family migrate and the elders keep the house together. But those who migrate bring back stories and bring back new knowledge. So it, it is valorized. That's interesting. Yeah. So it is not as if all of a sudden, you know, poor people would come to Europe. There is this long tradition of traveling as an initiation. Yeah. So uh, I could not say when the two ideas came together, uh, but when it did, all of a sudden I had a, a prism through which I could look at those migrations in another way. Yeah. It is beautiful, especially what you say about this old tradition and the values attached to that of migration in West Africa, that it's like a way to broaden your horizons, to bring in new knowledge, uh, because the way we talk about migrating Africans is often through the lens of misery, as you say, you know, like an economic necessity or, you know, worse, uh, slavery, you know, like that, that that is the only reason that people would ever leave their home. Exactly. Yeah. I was wondering if we can get to a few excerpts and read that whole first page from Canto 1. Ever since they row, songless, no heave ho, for how long, how to know, how many seasons, how many mirage islands the wind will sow. Did they row past pitch drunk and swollen with spindrift? A foggy memory of what it is to have one's feet on the ground and eyelids fluttering. They heed nothing at present, but the wave that goes slips away and returns. 
country folk who made themselves belated mariners, their bodies cadence them, to cleave with the oar's tainted tip, the purple mounds of the great salt savannah, which no furrow marks, where no seed takes root. But to say the sea, earthly words are little suited. At the point of the dream, they were a myriad, no less and no more, to cross the coral barrier in laughter with its vermilion flowers. There remain but three barks adrift, full, so full to the point of capsizing. With paddling, their arms have become paddles, hard driven into their brown and knotted trunks, and their salt-eaten feet are now no more than stumps that cleave to the hull with the agony of seven wounds. In their dizzying heights of suffering, they yet find the strength to row. Oh, the arrogant zeal of those who know their death approaches and prefer to gaze beyond what's certain. Thank you. Um, you do such an excellent job at representing the strangeness of this landscape. You know, this landscape that goes on and on and on in all directions for months and months, the same, the same, you know, the ocean, the waves, uh, you know, just these opening lines. Ever since they row songless, no heave ho. Like, they've even lost their song. That's how long they've been rowing, you know. Uh, how did you evoke that experience for yourself enough so that you could write it? Well, I think the main idea I had to guide me, especially in this first canto, was this question of honor that is very uh, prominent in African cultures and it's not often probably uh, known. So the mariners, the men, know that they are lost. And yet, in the name of the honor, they will continue. They do not have the strength to sing. Their body is wrecked by a pain and they will still continue because it doesn't serve any other purpose than, you know, keeping the honor until the end. That is, it is oh, okay, okay. Because, I mean, that, that horror, you also describe it so well. Uh, and their salt-eaten feet are now no more than stumps. I mean, it's so graphic and it sounds so painful. Yeah. yeah. And that was interesting also, like, you know, how you end that first thought, you know. Oh, le zèle autant de ceux qui connaissent leur mort approchée. Oh, the arrogant zeal of those who know their death approaches. Why that word? You know, why arrogant? Why autant? Because this is not just by obedience to a leader. In fact, we meet these men and women. I put yeah. women in my um, boats. We meet them in media res yeah. as they are, you know, uh, lost at sea. Mm -hmm. And we meet them first before meeting their leader, we, who is really the spirit of the travel. Huh? Uh, so, so I'm interested in their take on this trip. They committed to it and their commitment is of such uh, depth that it is close to stubbornness, okay? They could rebel. In fact, they attempt to at some point. They could rebel. They could do a number of, limited number of things. But no, they won't do it. And uh, they will continue row out of commitment to mm -hmm. themselves and to their own vision of who they are, what they represent on earth. This is so interesting because I, I, often when I was reading your book, I thought, 
there is another way of seeing this, right? Like, yes, these people display all this courage and this zeal and personality, but of course they are also employed or forced or dictated or whatever by a, le a king, like a kind of grandiose, you know, leader to go on this voyage that will lead to their almost inevitable death. And so in that sense, I was thinking it maybe does have things in common with the Middle Passage. But if I'm understanding correctly, are you are you saying that, no, that these things don't have anything in common? Like there's free will here. These people were there <laughs> of their own accord. How do you look at that? <laughs> no, probably not. And in fact, this is the object of the second canto where yeah. I had time to, uh, I realized after canto one that I don't know much more about the, <laughs> about the trip. So I want to go into more details. But who yeah. is this king? Who are the people who, uh, what are their motivations? And I try to explore that. And, you know, I imagine that, uh, of course, some People will try not to be recruited for the trip and they may belong to the elite because they have more means to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, some will be forced because they are slaves in the domestic uh, system. And some people will just love their leader and go just for that. Yeah. You were talking also about constructing a kind of landscape out of uh, the ocean, which is by definition without any type of bearings uh, that can be seen. And this is also the object of the, in particular, the beginning of the second canto, where I show that uh, the men and women rowing attempt to give themselves those bearings by looking at the waves and, you know, trying to go to this particular wave and, and go beyond after that. They try to make some type of sense out of uh, this senseless landscape. That was so thrilling to read, too, you know, like to see language fail, basically, you know, when confronted with something that, you know, we earthbound creatures are not used to describing at length, you know, and, and this failure of language, you capture that really well by using a lot of words from not just the earth, but from farming. In that first canto, you write, uh, they cleave with their oar, La grande savane salée, the great salt savanna, uh, que nul sillon ne marque, which no furrow marks, où nul semence ne lève, where no seed takes root. It's remarkably emotional, actually. Yeah, what it means for a human being to be stripped of anything they know and, and of the language to make sense of it. Can you tell me about your own struggle with language as you wrote this book set at sea. My first struggle was uh, against the text itself being uh, in the process of writing itself. Uh, I wanted to write a prose and I wrote the beginning and I saw that the text was breathing very, very widely and that uh, it had a rhythm and uh, it was inescapable. And uh, I said, no, not only is it poetry, but this is epic poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was frightened because I wasn't sure I was uh, ready for that because of everything that went through my mind once I recognized it as, a, as an epic poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I wanted to avoid the trap of writing an epic that would be a nationalist one, you know, mm. based on, on a nation. But at the same time, I think 
you know, I said, yes, this is exactly what I want because, because I want to show the heroism of those travelers of the contemporary migrants who go through extreme suffering, you know, be it in medieval ages or, or today, go to extreme suffering in the name of reaching the elsewhere, mm-hmm. reaching themselves. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't escape, continue in, in that genre, although, you know, mm-hmm. it was uh, treacherous. Uh, yes. <laughs> so... Yeah. So, yeah. It's so interesting to hear you say that the epic almost forced itself on you in a sense, you know, that you were not embarking on writing one. And uh, I looked it up, actually. I looked up the definition because I thought, do I know 100% what an epic is, you know? And, And the Internet said that it's a long poem, typically one derived from ancient oral tradition, which I thought was remarkable. We should talk about that. Narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or the history of a nation. Um, what does an epic allow you to do? Uh, so, so yeah, the mood of the epic poem is grandiose mm-hmm. and exalted. So the goal is not objectivity, it's not to bring things to uh, their real dimension, but on the contrary, to expand them, to let them breathe, and to have this type of, uh, you know, out-of-worldly dimension. You know, the voyage at um, on the ocean, the efforts. The leader of the trip will metamorphose under the very eyes of uh, his men. So the epic poem allows me to, to, to go beyond uh, the notion of truth, but to extract from all that a poetic truth that uh, allows us to uh, fill uh, the gaps in history. But um, epic poems have often been associated with, you know, uh, the glorification of masculinist values and nationalist values, and I didn't want to uh, fall into that trap. So I had to use some strategies. Some of them had to do with, you know, the characters that I would emphasize. Uh, so women are very much part of these trips. Yeah. I wanted also to uh, illustrate what Edouard Glissant had uh, said. You know, he had this uh, interesting intuition that an epic poem was not celebrating a victory but a defeat. Mm, wow. And this is really what you see. Yeah. What you see, and this defeat coalesces a, a community. And this is really what you see uh-huh. at work in the first canto. Yes. Um, I also wanted to parody some of those epics because they precisely glorify combats between men and the blood and a false sense of honor and conquest, colonial conquest, of course. So I attempted to work uh, all this in there to sort of allude to show also that it was an epic poem because it reverberated with other epics. But I pulled on a corpus, on an epic corpus, depending on what I needed to do. I didn't go, you know, to Gilgamesh. Or, but I pulled also on from African epics and mm-hmm. corpus, for instance, of corporations' epics. There are in West Africa corporations uh, such as uh, hunters, for okay. instance. And the hunters create epics. They uh, sing songs and those songs have been collected. And I used very much those uh, texts to feed my, my own for instance, those mariners, they are also hunters on the boats. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how do they find their bearings? How do they translate 
to see into something that they can approach, master, dominate. And there is in the in the second canto a scene with a hunter who faces the sea monster and unfortunately apply his knowledge of the earth to the sea where it's no longer adapted and open the way to misfortune for the rest of the crew. Oh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about these um, these West African epics that are about a community, you know, or like a, a group of people, yeah. a corporation, like like hunters. Because I was thinking, you know, when I was thinking about sort of the epic uh, as a form, I thought, okay, we don't write so many of them anymore today, but we do make movies. You know, like I feel like the, the Hollywood blockbuster where one guy, usually a guy, saves the world from, you know, some disaster is very much structured like an epic and and i like the way that you did not do that <laughs> you know that sure yeah. this king mm -hmm. is a part of the story but there's one scene where he's sort of lying on a boat with a cat sleeping at his armpit which i thought was a hilarious image so he he's not like presented as the the one hero who's gonna who's gonna save them all and it's really those rowers the people and the storytellers the the griots you know yeah. who seem to be like the collective heroes Yeah, and the king is uh, multifaceted. I didn't want to deliver the truth on him, ah. right? I wanted to show different possibilities mm -hmm. about him and uh, let the readers or the crowd or the chorus make their mind about mm -hmm. who he is. Uh, is he someone who is uh, fascinated by science? Is he someone mm -hmm. who is looking for the rain? Because the period of his uh, travel, uh, interestingly enough, matches a period of great drought. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my attempt to reconstitute the motivations of his uh, trip, you know, I also imagine that it could be the kind of a holy expedition to try to go and get the rain. Uh, mm -hmm. from elsewhere, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, the, this idea of the fight between the good and the evil mm, mm -hmm. is very much part of the traditional uh, epic, and I went against that. we can read one last excerpt from Canto 1. Uh, okay. So this is the end of Canto 1. It ends, as you already said, in defeat mm -hmm. with a big storm that nobody survives. Okay. Proof by song. Un éclair vient séparer la peau du ciel de celle de l'eau. A lightning bolt comes and separates the skin of the sky from the skin of the water. All immersed in their torrid coupling, slumped on three canoes, leaking everywhere, the spectral host glides into the interstice, to the waves and the flames debarred. The voyagers will no longer need to row, to the infinite they shall henceforth accustom themselves. But in the depths of the greenish abysses, the doubles of the to be enchained branded lacerated before being thrown mute with horror, screaming with rage overboard to the mercy of sharks. 
crossed their fleshless hands on the tops of their skulls. No, history would not be written otherwise, and so the sea takes on the tale, rolls its blues over the shipwrecks and the long sad banquets of the shades in their necropoles of white sand. Thank you. Yeah, I love how you also center the storytelling itself, you know, like how how will this story be told? Will the waves take it from here, basically? And there are these central figures throughout this book, this character of the griot, masculine, griot, feminine, you know, these West African storytellers slash keepers of history. Uh, can you tell me about them and what it was like for you to center your story around these storytellers? Uh, well, I wanted to have the story told from several points of view, several perspectives. So there is uh, in each canto a chorus of voices, uh, a polyphony, and um, it's possible to see them when you see that the narrative is interrupted and uh, all the voices come on top of the previous one. Uh, so I didn't want to have a, a single narrator or uh, an omniscient narrator or um, Invisible narrator would be me uh, to mm -hmm. tell the story. I want at each turn of the way to remember that this is a story being told, a series of stories, and that there are many ways of looking at the past and the present, and that truth is in uh, each of them, but in none of them at the same time. So the griot or the griot uh, rather um, is um, is a kind of a bold move that I made because obviously this is not a griot who would be near a king, uh, a male who is almost uh, in the position of a minister of communication, if I may say. So keeps the genealogy and translates the words of the king or the leader into a discourse for the crowd, for the for the citizens. Right. Here, I'm trying to work with the silences, uh, not only of history on uh, Abu Bakr II, that may be uh, grounded on the fact that, you know, we just have one single reference to him, but also the silence of oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we think of uh, Sundiata Keita, who was the founder of the Mali Empire, we have an oral narrative. We have several of them, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. But about Abu Bakr II, uh, more or less 100 years afterwards, silence. Mm -hmm. So it may well be that there was no Abu Bakr II. That's a possibility. But um, because I'm writing his story, I have to sort of uh, figure out what happened. Uh, why is it that the griots and uh, and the jelly and uh, refused to uh, include him in oral tradition? So mm. it may well be that they feel that this is too much hubris, that this is unheard of, you know, an emperor who just leaves his, uh, his empire to go at sea. And I imagine that a woman, uh, a griot, will say, okay, in that case, I will be the one who will tell the story. And uh, even if we are lost at sea, as she announces at the end of the canto, somehow the story will come back uh, to show and be told and people will not have died in, uh, in vain. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like, I cannot imagine really a more severe 
punishment for a king than to just be silenced, you know, by yeah, griots yeah, who yeah. are like, yeah, I'm not yeah, going to talk yeah. about you because yeah. what you did yeah. was shameful. You should have stayed with yeah. us and yeah. stuck it out. Um, um, or talk about you in the conditional form. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I was wondering if we can read one last excerpt from the book, this one from the third canto, so the one about contemporary time about migrants you know getting into rickety boats and try and reach uh you know i guess fortress europe is the official name of the <laughs> security apparatus you know that europe has put in place to prevent migrants from entering um i was thinking of, of an excerpt it starts on page 140 On the third day, a leak seeped in by a small orifice toward the front of the boat and came and bathed the wounds of our feet. As it is my first time at sea, I resolved to keep gourds in my mouth. Strangers have big eyes but only see what they want. On the fourth day, the water rose a bit, a bit, and a quarrel broke out. On the fifth, a slap burst and there was a brawl, a fight on the sixth, and three men overboard for two words exchanged. Someone thinks he can keep me from following my fish. You two, you don't know this stretch of sea you want to fish in is already sold. Come on over and I'll teach you and your rags a lesson, but things that do not please God. On the seventh, nothing to report. We got our ration, and moreover we learned, while we were at it, that it was all used up, our food once and for all. At the slightest chance that the calm sea laps, we prepare three rounds of tea. We chat, oh, about this and that, while others bail us out in silence and in turns so as to save sweat. They say the sea once made demands, giving license solely to her chosen ones to ride upon her with their henchmen. In the end, you knew her game and you knew your heart. But today, by way of mirrors, I see little at hand but waves without silvering and an immense deathbed where we are left valueless at the market's brutal behest. On the eighth day, thirst found us. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's very arresting. The way you just break it down in sort of like this very dry way, like, you know, on the first day this happened, on the on the eighth day. Um, uh, well, I didn't try to enchant the experience. Okay, mm -hmm. this is an experience of extreme confinement for a long period of time in terrible conditions. So this is an experience that reveals everything about individuals and uh, what is revealed is not necessarily uh, good. They are not heroes in the sense that they are good people. They are heroes in the sense that their action is foundational. They are at the foundation of a new humanity. Their sacrifices ushered. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully a new era in which migration will be a right. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and they pay dearly for that. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's something the poet, philosopher, cultural critic, Edouard Glissant, born in, in Martinique, who you already mentioned, he talks about the prophetic vision of the past. How does that resonate with you? Yeah, it, <laughs> uh, really, this is uh, at the core of this construction. Yeah. In fact, one could read the text by starting with the third 
quanto and come back to the other ones. Yeah. Uh, the story of Abu Bakr II takes a completely new meaning because of the contemporary voyages and vice versa. I mean, it's not a linear vision that I propose. You know, the past mm -hmm. makes sense of the present, sure. but the present makes sense of the past in another way. And this is really a, a concept at the core of the whole construction here. Yeah. So once I had that connection made, you know, I, of course, wrote to sort of prepare the parallel or the mirroring effect. But at the same time, I was I was very surprised at times by characters, for instance, that I would found, you know, in both times in uh, different boats, but in the, in the two eras that had sort of popped up as a kind of a resurrection of a past figure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was also curious, I mean, I've, I've had this question for a very long time, why those big figures in post-colonialism, you know, we were just talking about Edouard Guisson, but also uh, Franz Fanon, uh, Aimé Césaire, uh, why are they all French speaking? You know, like, why are <laughs> they all from former French colonies? Or, or is that a coincidence? Well, I mean, we have also Omi Baba and we have of course. a number of that. Yeah. But uh, it's, no, I think that the confrontation, uh, the double confrontation with a uh, history of enslavement and a uh, history of colonialism sort of uh, brought about a kind of uh, eruption of uh, thoughts uh, that really attempted to name things, mm -hmm. to name things uh, in a language uh, that was in a way refractory to this naming. And, you know, I love French, and uh, but English is much more open to a number of ways of talking. And until recently, French was much more guarded uh, towards new ways of expressing things and uh, it, especially, you know, ways that would undermine, in a way, the nationalist uh, discourse. I mean, it has uh, changed quite a bit, but it has long been the case. So the work of uh, the luminaries that you mentioned was not only to change the vision of history, but also to change the way of talking about that, that history uh, within a framework that didn't really allow the space for that new discourse to, to emerge. It's interesting. It's almost like there's a pressure cooker or something because the French language did not allow it. There was much more of a kind of desire to make it work. Like, well, yeah, we're going yeah, to use French yeah, yeah. to say these things that cannot be said yeah, in French. Yeah. What other tools do we have, you know, when uh, we are in a, in a francophone context? And one of my strategies in that poem was to refuse to use all the vocabulary that is usually reserved uh, to Africa, you know, the huts and the chiefs. And I used instead a medieval French vocabulary. Uh, you say, uh, you know, uh, a baron huh? instead of saying, you know, chief. Yes. And all of a sudden, there's another image that, that comes to mind. Mm. So here's an example where I used old French to tell African realities. And in the process, African realities shine mm. in another way. Yeah. yeah. I, I have just one last question. Um, what's it been like to work with... Alexander Dick. Oh, how do I pronounce his name for starters? Uh, 
Dikau, I think. Dikau, yeah. okay. Dikau, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I call him Alex, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you will ask him. I will ask him. I will ask him. I'm sorry, Alex, if I didn't get it wrong. wrong. What was it like to work with him on this translation? I mean, first of all, did you work together or did he just go off in his own corner and just kind of translated it? How did it go? No, no, that has been a, a wonderful experience. I mean, his translation is phenomenal. Um, I have heard only good things about them. I was, uh, you know, at time I was really um, in awe when I saw the way he could translate, you know, without losing the, the essence of the passage. Uh, and this is... Um, Uh, this is a very moving experience to see a text that you brought about uh, in another language because it is the same and at the same time it is another text. So you have this um, experience of uh, uncanny familiarity with <laughs> with the text and you find in it things that you hadn't seen before. So um, it has been a wonderful experience working with him. Yeah, I was curious about that, too, because, of course, you speak English. You live in English. I mean, you live in the United States, so you can see exactly what it is he does. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like when it's mm -hmm. translated to, I don't know, Bulgarian, and you just have to trust mm -hmm. that the mm -hmm. translator does mm -hmm. a good job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was fortunate also that he, uh, you know, he asked me what I thought of the translation that we worked on them, because, yes, in another language, I would have to, to let go. <laughs> Next, to better understand how the bilingual edition of The Never-Ending Quest for the Other Shore came to be, I talked to the translator. Before we go any further, uh, I asked Sylvie, what was it like to work with Alexander Dick? And then I just didn't know how to pronounce your name. Uh, and I asked her and she said, oh, I, I think uh, Dickow? I don't, I'm not sure. I just call him Alex, which I <laughs> thought was very sweet. So uh, tell me, how do, you, how do I pronounce your name? Um, we pronounce it Dickow, and in the French, we pronounce it Dico, like a dictionary. Uh, That's so, great. Uh, it was written in the yeah. stars that you were going to work in words. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm -hmm. For someone who has never translated something, can you describe the state of mind that you're in when you're, when you're translating? What does that feel like? Give me a moment to think up an analogy. Okay, it's a little like rowing. <laughs> That's perfect. That's great. Okay. For a very long time. And I, I say that not just because of the theme in the book, but because mm -hmm. I also have a rower that I use downstairs for my weekly exercise. There's a kind of monotony to it, right? You just have to do one stroke after the other and keep going in spite of the fatigue or, you know, whatever it is that's getting in your way. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's, that's translation. Not it's, quite the ringing endorsement I had in mind, but it's, you know, it's real. <laughs> I really enjoy it. I enjoy it uh, in, in strange ways, though, and it's different than other kinds of creative processes. You know, the exciting parts of translation for me are when I come across a really naughty passage where I just have to, naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, not mm -hmm. N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, <laughs> <laughs> where I really have to sort of buckle down and try and puzzle it out. And those are the moments where the rowing really picks up and you have to fight the waves a little bit. And that's when it's 
the most stimulating. But it's not the same kind of exaltation that I get from writing a poem from scratch. It's much more of a kind of discipline. Ooh, interesting. With the hard edges that that implies and the notions of like persistence and sticking with it and buckling down, those kinds of notions are, are for me, a, a lot of what translation is about. Yeah. And I, I love it. I love that. <laughs> Some I lo of us are gluttons for punishment. It's just how That's it is. right. Yes. No, it does take a particular kind of brain to do this sort of yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go to your specific work on the never-ending quest, I have a more general question about what it means to translate from French to English. And I was wondering, what are some of the traps that a rookie might fall into? Uh, the thing I see most often is ordinary words with multiple usages that, you know, students in translation, the undergraduates will have do some translation in my advanced writing course, for instance, will not recognize that that word is not being used in its usual way. Mm. Right. And so, in other words, they're not using their dictionaries enough. Right. They think they, have, they know what it means. They think they know what it means. They immediately recognize it. And therefore, they just automatically translate it without s taking a step back and saying, "Is this? does this sound the way that it's usually used? And maybe I should go to the dictionary if it sounds a little funny to huh. go and take a look at what other usages of this word there are. So that's what I see among, you know, beginning translators who are just starting out is that it'll be a word like, something banal like regarder or something, uh -huh. but it will be used in some idiomatic sense in combination with another word, and they'll just pass right by it and, oh, it's look, to look, and they'll translate it that way. That's uh, very interesting. So as a professional translator, as someone who has, you know, quite a lot of experience under his belt, how important is the dictionary to you still? Oh, constantly, constantly, constantly. I spend... 50 to 60% of the time you know, on a difficult passage is going to be spent digging around in dictionaries and figuring out what I can do, looking at thesauruses, at historical dictionaries sometimes, you know, and that's, uh, I'm close to bilingual, uh, you know, I have, I have a, a near native French level, and I still need to spend that kind of time in the dictionaries, it's just constant. And to me, that's, you know, that's the difference between a professional translation and, uh, you know, and a, and, a, and a translation by someone who hasn't hasn't reached that that level yet is not is not linguistic capability, but rather the willingness and time and attention to detail that it requires to go hunting around in dictionaries. <laughs> that is beautiful. Uh so besides the dictionary, I was also interested in the preparation work you did to get ready for The NeverEnding Quest. When I talked to Sylvie, she told me that she prepared for writing her epic by reading epics, uh, not Gilgamesh per se, but things closer to her topic, like West African hunter epics, for instance. Mm -hmm. how, how did you prepare? I read the book a lot over and over. You know, I've, I've read it many, many times now. And I wrote actually an academic research article on CV's book. And for that, there was a lot of the preparation that ended up feeding into back into the translation, such as reading Sunjata, the West African epic, reading about hunter epics. I don't know that I actually read any hunter epics themselves, but, mm. you know, taking a look at things like Omeros by Walcott, and, you know, other epic poems, reading about H.D.'s Helen in Egypt, reading about the one that Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, uh, Aurora Lee, you know, 
all sorts of things like that and really getting a sense of the epic tradition and where this book fit or didn't fit as the case may be can you explain that a little more because you know when you say that you're reading and that that work actually fed back into your translation can you tell me something that you learned that you could then use practically well um it's a little imponderable, but uh, <laughs> one thing that I sort of focused in on after doing that research is the nature of the hero in Sylvie's work. Mm. And heroes are very interesting in, in this book. They have a tendency to um, to be elusive. Yeah. So, for instance, Abubakar II transforms into a bird on the prow of the boat, the decoration of, on the prow of the boat, and vanishes, right, essentially. Mm. Mm. Um, in the second canto, He's described in a variety of different ways, right? In one description, he's a man of action. In another description, he's a you know a student of books, of lore. So these heroes are very elusive. And of course, Arasan, the character in the third canto, we're not exactly sure of his name. And his ultimate gesture is to leap into the water and swim for the shore. So all of these heroes are very elusive. And they're also crazy. Right. Abubakar II is totally crazy to be doing what he's doing. And that sense of démesure, right, of, mm -hmm. of hubris, I think really animates all of the heroes in Sylvie's book. And to me, that was something that was really enriched by looking at the way heroes are dealt with in other epics. Mm -hmm. And so I really tried to respect that aspect mm -hmm. of the text. Yeah. I was wondering if we can get to a specific line or verse or even just word. Is there something that you're particularly proud of? That I'm, yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> there absolutely is. And I will have to um, take a peek and see where if I can find the uh, passage here. There it is. Page 118 in the on the Google search. Perfect. So it says, um, while they upbraided the men for being unworthy of the sea, all of a sudden it seemed to me, son of a talent thrown upon the shore, they took their fingers scorn to spread apart the gills of me in order to assess my agony as dubiously fresh. Right, and so I captured. There's a there's a an assonance between ui and agony. Yeah, yeah because ui is gill, right? That's right. That's a gill. Right. And so I captured the assonance at the end of the uh, of the lines to spread apart the gills of me in order to assess my agony, which reproduces the the assonance in the original, oui and agony. That and is for amazing. some reason, I just thought that was a particularly successful moment in the translation where I was like, "Oh, that was really hard, and I did it." <laughs> it is amazing, and it, it also reads completely natural. You know, it doesn't seem like this was belabored. No, yeah, that's why I think it's it works, right? Yeah. I sort of pulled it off for once. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, of course, my inevitable question. What is something that you're maybe not so happy with? There was one of those as well. And I'm trying to remember what it was. I may have, my brain may have edited it out <laughs> as an undesirable element. <laughs> um, and I can't remember what it was. 
Um, one thing that's a little hard to capture, I think, in general, is there, there are moments where the text gets very, very polyphonic. Uh-huh. And sometimes I wondered if that came through in the English, right? If the polyphony was sort of pronounced enough and obvious enough for the reader to pick up on what was going on in those passages. Um, Why do you think it's easier or like what makes it more obvious in French? It was sometimes difficult in French as well. Like there were a couple of passages where I had to ask Sylvie, like, what, what exactly is going on here? And there's actually moments where someone will start saying something and then it, what they say is actually completed several lines later. And in between, you get other voices that get mixed in. And once she told me that what was going on, it was very, very easy to figure it out. But I wonder if it translated well. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's like that passage that we just read, right, where you have this very dry description of, you know, on the third day, this happened on the fourth day. And then all of a sudden you have this quarrel and you you actually hear the lines of those people quarreling. And then you just go yeah. right back to and then on the seventh day and on the eighth day, you know. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I look, I don't know what I've missed. Of course, that's the nature of having missed things is that you don't know you have. Uh, I thought it was as clear as poetry can be, you know. Um, that was another thing that I really tried to do in this translation is it's still a story. And I, th I think one of the great things about this book is that it's a story. And it gets put in poetry sections. It gets categorized as poetry. But it's also an epic story. It's an, it's an act of storytelling. And to me, that gets lost a little bit in categorizing it as poetry. People think about it as lyric and they want to sort of, you know, I, um, there was even one publication that, that published it as poems, Oof. which was okay, but you read different, you approach the text differently if you think of it as a story or if you think of it as a series of connect, interconnected lyrics. Totally. And to me, that also sets it apart from something like Omeros. I mentioned Omeros earlier, the Derek Walcott poem, which is what's referred to as a, um, as a lyrico epic sequence, which is to say that the, the, its parts are fairly autonomous relative to one another. You can take them out and they, they work as individual poems. And that's really not the case here. It really is a whole that needs to be understood as a whole. And I think that's great that, you know, someone wants to write a poem that's also a story in verse. <laughs> Absolutely. And Sylvie said also something about that that I thought was beautiful, is that she initially started writing it in prose. Mm -hmm. And then she noticed that the text that she was writing was not behaving like prose. You know, she told me that it was breathing widely the way mm -hmm. poetry does, especially epic poetry. I thought that was so good, breathing widely. So what was that like to render that kind of, you know, breath, that kind of rhythm in English? It's great. Uh, um there's this word in French that doesn't translate very well. You use the word breath, but in, in French they say le souffle, mm. right? Which is something that's used to describe that sort of breath or vastness, that sense of vastness that you get from reading epic poetry. And it's really fun to translate. It's very, uh, you know, very uplifting. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, you know, when you manage to pull off a passage and, and it works, you get buoyed up by the text. Yeah. And Souffle. I don't think there's anything equivalent in English. It's like the, the breath, the divine breath that uh, fills the, that fills the verses when when it's working. Yeah, yeah, because it also combines breath and spirits, right? So, yeah. I mean, spirit in mm -hmm. that sort of yeah. Well, what was it like to work together? I mean, Sylvie lives, works in English, so you're mm -hmm. not 
you know, Alone. You, you can't just go. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, you, <laughs> she can scrutinize your work. Uh, what was that like? Like, did you show her drafts or were you really trying to like polish it as perfect as you can and then only show her? Or like how comfortable were you with showing kind of the loose ends of things? So I'm very open about my, my writer's workshop. Hmm. So to me, it was okay to show her drafts and show her places that I wasn't sure what to do. And, you know, unfinished passages and, you know, passages with things in bold that I wasn't able to figure out. I was, you know, open about showing those to her. And then she would make additional comments on things sometimes that I thought were settled or that I thought were was the, was the good option. And she had a lot of input on the whole thing and not just the passages that I had bold. And I thought it was it was a great process. We worked very well together. It was very harmonious and uh, uh, rigorous, but really fun. I mean, she's really just a great person to work with. And it was it was very smooth. Weren't many bumps along the way. I, I hear a little something that I am curious about, but I don't know if that's my place to ask. But if you say, you know, she was really nice to work with, very smooth. You know, I hear that you have had other experiences. Uh. <laughs> in translation it's been pretty good actually i've had pretty good luck so um i also have a translation of uh ananda mazio's uh, la route du contrevent which is a big work of science fiction in france and that book was really intense to translate we used to have these sessions uh zoom sessions where we would sit down and work really hard on the translation together and that was fantastic i mean both Alain and sylvie have become very good friends and i think partly because of the translation work was just you know a way of of connecting yeah 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 uh i have a question that is a little zooming out now um because last year there was this controversy in the world of translation which doesn't happen a lot so you probably already know what i'm talking about mm -hmm. it was around that poem the hill we climb by Amanda Gorman that she wrote for the Biden inauguration. And that controversy started because the Dutch translator that they picked for the job was uh, white, which black activists and writers thought was incomprehensible. So this Dutch translator stepped aside. And I read that something similar happened with the Catalan translator, also white. And so I was wondering if, you know, mm -hmm. here, here you are, translating a work written by a French Senegalese poet who writes the story of an African king and his followers and also the story of African boat migrants and you are white. Uh, you know, is that something that you think about? Uh, hang on just a second. I've lost the connection. Oh, it looks like we got the connection back. All right. Did you hear my question or should I just repeat it? I did hear the question. Um, so the question is, like, how do I position myself with regard to the controversy, yes. given that I'm a white guy translating a story about Africa by a French Senegalese poet? Yes. And um, the answer is, I don't know. Um, I wanted to respect this text and to get this text to sing in English so that people could see what I was seeing in the French. And I hope I did that well, and that I did it, you know, respecting Sylvie's story as well as the stories that are told in the book. And I can only try and do those things justice. I think that to some extent, what was at stake was not a matter of, you know, the translator needs to be of a given identity. What it was about is, if we're going to 
promote a black American poet, why don't we also promote black translators? And I think a lot of people were very upset because they, they thought it had something to do with you can only speak about something if it's, you know, from the perspective of your own identity. But I don't think that's what the stakes were. I think the stakes were, were had to do with marketing and branding and who to choose to promote and those kinds of issues. And those are distinct from the issue of who gets to talk about a given kind of experience. Um, I do believe that fiction is a place where we should be able to explore different identities and different perspectives. But that's a very distinct question from the sort of business of publishing and the business of who to promote. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you make that distinction. I'm also curious, you know, because you're also a researcher of translation. And one of the things that you're interested in is mistranslations and what those mistranslations reveal about the translator and about, you know, their ideology or their implicit biases or, you know, the the mm -hmm. kind of framework that they work out of. And you approach it almost like a Freudian slip, you know, that they can also kind of be revealing of things that A, we're not aware of or B, that we are trying to keep hidden. Mm -hmm. uh, so given that, is there a way in which you ever thought, what is it that I'm not seeing What is it that I'm not aware of? Because, of course, an implicit bias is, well, implicit. We don't know it always. So how do you how do you look at uh, the blank spots in your own approach? I think that has everything to do with having other readers look at it. You know, it's so crucial to have other people see the text and point those things out when they happen. So having Sylvie as a reader is, of course, incredible, but also, you know, the people at Asymptote and other readers along the line who have seen the text. But to me, that's the only way to see the things you're not seeing and or, you know, to have someone else point them out to you. And the other thing is that I was, I did become aware of, you know, ignorances that I had as I was working on the text. So, you know, I was like, I really need to read the Sunjata. Uh -huh. And I did go and read it. And, you know, it led to an article. And, you know, that was part of the process was, you know, picking up just enough on sort of things that I didn't know that much about and that I needed to know more about. Um, yeah. It was part of the experience of the text. And, you know, I've, I've learned enormous amounts just, you know, translating this book. Yeah. Uh Okay, I have one last question. Uh, is translating a never-ending quest for the other shore, in your opinion? Yes. Uh, you you are always trying to reach something that you can't, <laughs> that you won't reach. Can you make that just a little more specific? Like, what is it that you're trying to do and know that you'll fail at? So I wonder if it's uh, maybe more uh, a matter of the particular aesthetic shape of the object that you're translating rather than trying to reach the meaning of another language in general. You're trying to reach uh, what this particular book, this particular poem, this particular text has to say in the way that it says it um you know i'm i'm, I'm groping after my words naturally but <laughs> naturally <laughs> um what i'm trying to say is that when you look in dictionaries you get 
these disembodied meanings detached from their specific instances of use, uh, you get a kind of abstraction. And translating is attempting to reach uh, the specific perspective that's at work in the words in that specific book. I, I don't think I'm getting any closer to my object here. <laughs> <laughs> the quest for the other shore is indeed never-ending. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. The never-ending quest for the other shore, La Quête Infinie de l'Autre Rive, was written by Sylvie Condé and translated by Alexander Decau. The book received the Prix Lucienne Gracia-Vincent and was adapted for theater and staged at La Maisière in 2017. To complete his translation, Alexander Decau received a 2018 Benheim grant. Besides The Neverending Quest, Sylvie Condé is the author of two books that have only appeared in French, the poetry collection Gestuaire, which won the Prix Louise Labbé, and a volume of memoiristic poetic prose titled Lagon Lagune, Tableau de Mémoire, which has a postface written by Édouard Glissant. She's also a scholar of African history who has taught at American universities for over three decades. She launched a Francophone studies program at NYU and currently teaches at SUNY Old Westbury. She lives in Harlem, New York. To find out more about her work, check out her website, sylviecondé.com. That is Sylvie, S-Y-L-V-I-E, and then Condé, K-A-N-D-E, dot com. Alexander Dickow is a translator, bilingual poet, and scholar of French and Francophone literature, who, besides this book, has translated work by Gustave Roux, Henri Droguet, Max Jacot, and others. He's also the author of several poetry collections, including Appetites, Carambole, Trial Balloons, and Rhapsodie Curieuse. Besides the Penheim Translation Fund grant, he received the Albert Lee Sturm Award for Excellence in the Creative Arts and was a Jacob K. Javits and a Fulbright Fellow. He lives in Blacksburg, Virginia, where he teaches at Virginia Tech. To find out more about his work, check out his website, alexdickow.net. That's Alex and then Dickow, D-I-C-K-O-W dot net. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus and Erik van der Wester. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. And thank you, too, to my editor on this podcast, who asked to be left nameless and who is leaving the Poetry Foundation after 15 years. Thank you for letting me in when I came knocking on the Poetry Foundation's door and for giving me a chance. And thank you for your kind and wise guidance these past few years. You will be missed. <laughs>